Well, hello, I'm Joel Wayne, one of the pastors here. I want to echo the Merry Christmas, and I'm grateful that we get to hear these stories of transformation in the service today. I want to give us one more picture of Jesus that Paul paints. We've been walking through that for the month of December, and in order to see this picture of Jesus, this picture of Christmas that we've just celebrated I actually want us to start with Acts chapter 11. Now, obviously, Paul did not write the book of Acts. He, he came to know Christ in Acts chapter 9. And just a couple of chapters later, what we see in Acts chapter 11, verse 27 and following, I'm inviting you just to go ahead and turn there with me now. Go ahead and open up the word of God, your phone, whatever it is. Acts chapter 11, and I want to call this out for us today before we get to the primary text is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We'll get there in a second. Here's what it is. Acts chapter 11, it says, verse 27 and following, Now in these days prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine all over the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone, according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So again, there's going to be this great famine. You just need to know the story here. A prophet by the name of Agabus comes before the people and says, this is what's going to occur. This is what's going to happen. And as a result of that, the people of God, the, 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 the believer, they came together and they wanted to send relief. So imagine, even a few weeks ago, uh, maybe you're familiar with all the tornadoes that struck in Kentucky. We also see it with hurricanes that strike along the coast there in Florida and Alabama and Louisiana and Texas, other places, right? And we often send relief. Well, now that's what they're wanting to do as well. They're wanting to come together and show the love that they have from Christ to other people. Now, we see this playing out and the power of their ministry is being called out by Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, where he is now encouraging the church in Corinth by the witness of all of these other individuals to be as generous as they are. So here, this is what he does. He calls it out. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, he says, we want you to know brothers about the grace of God that has been given amongst the churches of Macedonia. Now, those are the churches of, of Berea and Thessalonica, of Philippi. These are the individuals who, when they saw the famine that was to come and is now there, that they saw and they witnessed, he's referencing them as people who are just crazy generous with everything that they had. And he says, for in a severe test of affliction, that means they're still hurting, there's poverty throughout the world, it says, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, and as I can attest, beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. This is an amazing example of what it is to be used by God to spread his love and his grace. And the thing is, this, this is something that Paul, again, is writing to the people of Corinth. 
He's calling out the Macedonian churches as an example, as a witness for their generosity, for their posture and all that they were doing. Now you're going, how does this paint a picture of Jesus? We're going to get there in a second because this is, this is crucial for us. This is one of the things that we need to know before we go any further. The people here, they did not give out of their surplus. The people gave out of their poverty. Now, that kind of statement has been said before, but absorb it. The people, it tells us clearly, they were not giving out of their surplus. Often that's what we do, right? Maybe you've been through a line, grocery store. I've been there before. Recently, I'm in one. They always ask you now, do you want to round up to the nearest dollar to help whatever relief organization? And I'm not saying that's the wrong thing to do, but I think sometimes we get tired of always being asked for something. Well, here's a man in front of me at the store uh, down the street and the lady said, hey, would you like to round up to the nearest dollar? He's like, no, that's my hard earned money. <laughs> and goes on, of course, I'm the next guy in line. So I'm like, yeah, sure, round up because I felt bad for the lady because of the way that he responded. But I think that's how we are sometimes where we get tired of being asked for things. Well, here, they weren't even asked, much less to give out of their surplus. They knew of a need and automatically they wanted to jump in to meet that need. And they didn't even do it according to their own means, but beyond their means, according to verse three. And then in verse four, it tells us that they begged to be part of it. Listen to these words again. They begged us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. You want to talk about heart posture. Like you, you want to go home and talk to your friends and your family about heart posture and, and put it up to the Macedonian churches at this time. They didn't just give out of surplus, but they gave out of everything they had. They gave out of their poverty. They had nothing. And yet they're begging to take part. They're begging to be used. Well, the passage continues here. In verse six and following, it says, accordingly, we urged Titus. Now, Titus was an associate with Paul, okay? It says, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. They wanted to really continue it out. So he's now asking the Corinthian church, will you be like the Macedonian churches? You've said you love the Lord, but are you gonna really show that you love the Lord? But as you excel in everything, in faith and in speech and in knowledge and all earnestness and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. So here's this associate, Titus, who's being sent and going to rally the troops and say, listen, you have declared and professed a love and a faith in Jesus Christ. But now my question is very simple. Are you gonna put action to the words that you have spoken? Are you going to be like the Macedonian churches? You see, the thing about the Macedonian churches that really separates them from so many people today is I think they had a different understanding of God's grace. So often I think that we understand God's grace to be that very thing that gets us over, just kind of gets us over the hump in life and so that we can endure and hopefully make it and then eternally we'll be with Jesus. But grace, God's grace is more than that. God's grace shifts your perspective. 
God's grace, when you are truly bathing in the grace of the ocean of grace that is from God, all of a sudden your perspective changes, the decisions you make in life changes, where you give priority changes, the influence in your life, they have different impact on you. Everything shifts. And the Macedonian churches, they were giving out of an empowering that came from their acceptance of God's grace. Have you accepted the power of grace that allows you to do more than otherwise would be possible? I mean, is that how you process God's grace? Or is God's grace another flippant thing that you just mentioned? Because here's a picture of the church has experienced such radical grace that everything starts to change. Their perspective is different. And now Paul is calling out to the Corinthian church. Maybe he's calling out to Chapel Point Church and saying, man, guys, you're awesome. I love you. And some of you speak really well about who Christ is, but it's time to show the grace that you've encountered by the willingness you have to meet the needs of other people. And when I'm talking about needs here, this isn't a money sermon. Yeah, money is, is part of it. I'll get ahead and tell you right now, but it's where you spend your time. It's where you spend your energy. It's where you give of yourself. It's the priorities that you have in life. And so we encounter this type of grace. He tells them, complete this grace. Excel in this type of grace. In verse six, he should complete among you this act of grace. You know, there are so many, and I referenced this earlier, there's so many people, friends, that what happens is they say one thing over and over and over, repeatedly sometimes, but you never see it really lived out. And here's a church being questioned about their ability to live it out, to complete this grace. The Corinthian Christians, I think, were well-intentioned in their desire, but if not lived out, it had no value. If the grace that you have experienced in the power of God is not lived out, it has no value. It has no value for any of us. And so I, I do believe Paul is yelling at them, do what you said you would do. You abound in everything, he says in this passage in verse seven, he says, you abound in what? In faith, you abound in speech and in knowledge and all diligence and in love for us. So if you abound in all of these things, now I'm asking that you abound in grace. When you're overwhelmed by grace, that leads to an overwhelming of forgiveness. And when you're overwhelmed by the forgiveness that you've experienced, you're eager to then show that to other people. And that's one of the greatest testimonies that we have in the world in which we live today. That is a picture of Jesus. That's a picture of Jesus. And so these people from Macedonia and these churches, Berea and Thessalonica, Philippi, they're being so generous because of the grace that they've received. And our giving should reflect God's giving of grace to us. You see, your willingness to give of your energy and your time and your resources and your money and your relationships, that's a reflection of what God has given to you. So when we have a church that strives to be overly generous, hands opened, and without expectation of anything in return. So as we continue in this passage, I already read for you verse eight where it says, this is not a command. He's not saying, 
You have to do this. But he, there is a very strong, as he said, even about Titus, we urge Titus. This is a strong prompting, a strong urging to live this out. And then in verse nine, he says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich for your sake, he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. Now I wanna read this again, 2 Corinthians 8 verse nine, right? Just take it in. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we've been talking about grace these churches had encountered this amazing grace already. It says, so as you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, yet for your sake, he became poor. We talked about the poverty that they had, that in their poverty, right? Second Corinthians chapter eight, verse two, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity. How often do we match that up? Extreme poverty, abundance of joy. And here that calls it out. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, he was full deity. He never surrendered his deity, full deity. Yet for your sake, he became poor, which means he took on humanity. So that you by him taking on humanity, by you, by his poverty, may become rich. What a picture. You know, we're talking about pictures of Jesus and I think this is truly a picture of Jesus because what you see is now the Macedonian churches are being used as an example to the church of Corinth to say, this is what it looks like to live out abundant grace. This is what it looks like for you to be able to say, you know what, I've experienced so much that even in my poverty, I'm going to give. I'm not gonna give it on my surplus. I'm gonna give everything I have because it's at his feet. When you've experienced that type of grace, you recognize that your life is not your own. Your preferences are no longer yours. Everything belongs to him. And something that that's extreme, to me is simply the appropriate response to somebody who has given his life so that for eternity, you might be with the heavenly father. So again, if you might say that it's extreme, I'm simply letting you know it's appropriate. And it's also what is urged of us to have that type of response to such radical grace in our life. Because before taking on humanity, Jesus had everything at his disposal. He was, remember from the very beginning, full deity. And no, again, he did not lay aside his deity when becoming a, hum a human, but he took on humanity. And while once living in the riches and the splendor of, of heaven, he is now allowing himself to be brought to this earth. And while he was not a beggar, we certainly know that he knew what it was to be poor. Matthew 8 verse 20 says, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. And so now we see this picture of Jesus Here's this picture of Christmas that says, I'm going to give you all of myself. While being fully deity, I'm going to embrace what it is to step into humanity, become poor 
so that I may share everything that I have with you. Do you not see the correlation in this and what then the people of the church, especially the churches in Macedonia, then did in order to emulate Christ? That's a picture of Jesus. Is that what we are emulating? This is a picture of Christmas. That the churches, that the people would be willing to do this. And then it tells us 2 Corinthians 8, 10 through 12, just to finish up with this, it says, and in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to the desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well so that your readiness and desiring it may be matched by completing it out with what you have. He is, man, I tell you what, he is pushing in, leaning in on them right now and saying, listen, you, be, you need to live according to what you have claimed to be faith previously. You need to live it out. You've claimed a faith in Jesus Christ. You have professed that he is your savior, that you have surrendered everything to him. Live it then. Live it out. Act, start demonstrating that. That's what they're being called to do. So it says, now you also must complete the doing of it. This is an easy way. And this is how I'll conclude the message with us today. This is, I'm just gonna walk through the text one last time. I'm gonna throw some stuff up on the screen for us because this is an easy way for us to ask ourselves, are we now, Christmas was yesterday, are we now living out a picture of Jesus because of the grace that we have received? Because if you live by grace, first thing for you, Verse two says that you have an abundance of joy. If you live by grace, you have an abundance of joy, right? That means it doesn't make sense. It tells us in verse two, that it says that if you live by grace, you, have, you overflow with generosity. Even when you are afflicted in poverty, it's like people are like, why are you helping? That's why we know that the less you make, typically the greater percentage you give back. Because the more we obtain, the more we think we've deserved it. We've deserved nothing but death, and yet God has given us life. But if you live by grace, we have an abundance of joy. Second, you overflow with generosity. In verse three, it, it says that they gave beyond their means. So if you really have been just, just knocked over with the grace of God, now you're giving beyond your means. Verse four means that you're begging to be part of God's work in others. Verse four, again, I said it earlier, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part. They have nothing, but they're begging to be a part. They're knocking on the door. We don't need anything else. Come up with something else because people need to know Jesus. Instead of waiting for someone else to come and finish the work, they're willing to do the work because they've encountered the grace of God. Have you encountered that type of grace? Because if you live by grace, you have an abundance of joy, you overflow with generosity, you give beyond your means, you beg to be part of God's work. In verse four, you give yourself first to the Lord, verse five, above anything else. So what forces your decisions? The way you maneuver through life. And so you give yourself first to the Lord. Another thing that you do is you excel in faith, speech, knowledge, and in grace in all of them. And that's an important thing because sometimes knowledge and grace can be conflicting because the more we grow in knowledge, the more we can grow in judgment rather than wanting to give grace and forgiveness and love. 
In verse eight, it says, if you live by grace, that you love others genuinely. That you love others genuinely. It says, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. And then finally, if you live by grace, you live according to verse nine and 10. You live as Christ. Who though he was rich, became poor. Though he was rich, had everything at his disposal, became poor. That though he has the power and the right to do anything he wants, became poor. To demonstrate his grace that radically shifted humanity forever. Maybe the question for you is do you struggle with accepting such radical grace? You know, a lot of people, it's, it's hard to live by this type of grace. It's hard to live by grace that causes you to have an abundance of joy, right? And to overflow with generosity and to beg to be part of the ministry and to what God is doing and to love others genuinely. It's hard to do that. And I think the hardest thing about it is it's hard for us to receive it because I think we know we're not worthy of it. But yet he gave it anyway. I think that's where we have to simply humble ourselves and say, you know what, God, I know I don't deserve it. Say it out loud to people. Get in your bedroom and just say it out loud. God, I know I don't deserve it. And it just gives you a greater appreciation for what he's done. And then all of a sudden your heart is captivated by his grace and his love and his passion for you. And when that happens, you'll start see, to see a change in your life and your relationships that you've never seen before. I know that this church, we get to live by grace together. That's why we're overly generous. You hear it in the stories this morning with stories of transformation and you see it all around us. People are trying to live open-handed because we have received so much of the blessings and the grace of God. Will you live by the grace of God and all that it means? It is a beautiful picture of Christmas. Let's pray together. God, I come before you. I give you thanks for your love and your power. I give you thanks that because of your grace, we can have an abundance of joy, even in the midst of our poverty. I give you thanks that because of the, the grace of God in our lives, that we can overflow with the generosity, begging to be a part of your work because we're so amazed, we're astonished that you would do so much for us sinners that you would do so much for us knowing we know we're not worthy of it, but God, may we just accept it today in gratitude and in appreciation. May everybody who's hearing this message now just breathe in the power, the grace of God, declare your greatness and then live accordingly. Thank you for such a powerful picture. Thank you for a savior named Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. In Christ's name, amen.